Andrew Peterson is one of my favorite Christian artists. Uh, he has an album called Resurrection Letters, volume number one, which is one of my all-time favorite albums that I was introduced to about two years ago, and literally a week does not go by without me listening to some of the cuts from it. And especially for this week, it is such a great album. And in one of the songs, it's entitled Remember Me, and it's from the perspective of one of the thieves hanging next to Jesus on the cross who says to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's just one of the most beautiful exchanges in the Bible, and it is so brief and short. And Jesus says to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. I love that. There is always hope for the dying among us. The dying sinner, the dying thief, the dying anyone. Lord, remember me. But at any rate, this song, the second verse, has a great summary of this week leading up to Easter. And it goes like this. On Sunday, you came as a king. On Monday, washed the temple clean. On Tuesday, you said you told what will be. On Wednesday, you waited patiently. On Thursday, you said it is time. I'll drink this cup because it is mine. On Friday, you poured the wine. I love that. If I was more talented, I would sing it to you this morning. This holy week that that summarizes, this holy week is full of some of the most dramatic and significant events in the life and ministry of Jesus. Him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, just like King David and King Solomon did before him. He's riding into, that, into the, the city, the capital city, as the Passover crowds are going up, and they're all cheering him as their newfound king. When only days later, they would turn on him and demand his crucifixion. This week, we'll see tables turned and 30 pieces of silver change hands. We'll see him eagerly share the Passover meal with his disciples after he washes their feet. And then later that night, we'll see him anguishing in the garden in prayer when his disciples can't stay awake. And then we'll see the torch-lit mob, the betrayal by a kiss. And we'll see them nailing him to the cross with a crown of thorns upon his head and a, and a sign hanging above him that was mocking him as the king of the Jews. And in the darkness that overcomes them all, we hear words coming from this bleeding Savior, words of forgiveness and love and prophetic anguish. And we almost want to turn our eyes away from him because it is so graphic and the torture is so intense. But still, this Savior hanging on the tree, though despised and rejected by men, he did not see himself as a victim. He willingly laid his life down for his friends and his enemies. And with the death of this one came the death of this Messiah movement. And all their hopes and dreams seemed to be buried with him in that tomb that was borrowed outside the city gates. What a profound 
and devastating week. For anyone listening right now who is not a believer, a follower of Christ, a Christian, you need to understand this, that all that occurred in that week 2,000 some years ago had to be done. It had to be accomplished, not only to fulfill prophecy, but in order that God's salvation might come to a broken world, to our broken lives. And though Jesus was rejected by his own, we are promised, and you are promised if you're not in Christ, that to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be called sons and daughters of God. He gives you the right to be born again, not of blood, not of flesh, not of blood, but born of God. But for those of us sitting here who are born again, and there are many, I'm assuming, that are, for those that are in Christ today, while we may look back on these events and see them with, uh, with some nostalgia and feel like we have a pretty good idea, a 2020 vision on what happened and why it happened, here's my question for you. What should this really mean for us? Not what we think it means, but what should it really mean for the way we live our lives? This is a week, and we could just see it as a morbid reality. <clears throat> we might even see it as a recital of horrors that, that is the Roman crucifixion, their form of execution, and the brutalities that they cast upon our king. And while it certainly could serve us to ruminate, if you will, on the, on the sights and the sounds and the significance of this holy week, we need to remember what Jesus said to those who would be his disciples. Because he has something to say that defines for us the way we see these events. For example, in Luke 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then, a few chapters later, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot, cannot be my disciple. Jesus not only suffered for us on the cross, he intends for us to follow him with our own. There's more than one cross involved in this story. He died upon one. But he says to those that would follow him, you must pick up your cross and daily come after me, following me and living the way that I lived my life. It's not enough to say, I believe. You must also pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him to be seen as his disciple. Elizabeth Elliot said this, to be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it even more bluntly, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. While Holy Week that we have 
talked about in our recognizing this day as the beginning, Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. While Holy Week is a chief reminder of his passion to fully appropriate it in our lives, for it to make the difference and to frame how we live, we must also deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. Otherwise, the price he paid is wasted on us. The Apostle Paul understood this. He recognized it, and in all of his teachings, you can see the same thread that we sang about earlier today running through what he writes. Paul lived himself as a disciple. First and foremost, as a disciple of the Lord's. And he admonished us to do the same thing, like when he did here in Philippians 2 that I asked you to turn to. Look with me, Philippians 2 and verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 7 says in this passage that Jesus emptied himself. Some translations say that he was made nothing. He made himself as nothing. And that Greek word there for emptied is kenosis, which means, wait for it, to empty. So, so my Bible did a really good job of translating that one right there. Um, to empty. The kenosis of Christ is a major uh, doctrine of Christology, the study of who Christ is to us. But what does this emptying of himself exactly entail? What does it mean? Did Jesus empty himself of his deity in order to become a man? No. No, he did not. That's not even anywhere close to true. In fact, that's heretical to think that. That's a, an ancient heresy called Arianism. And it is not true. He, he was 100% man, yes, but also 100% God. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul spells it out for us. He said what this emptying looks like, it is taking on something. And that is the form of a servant. He emptied himself not by relinquishing deity. He emptied himself by taking on humanity. Becoming something he was not previously 
which required humility and even humiliation, which is a term that I use not when we get embarrassed about something. Oh, that's humiliating. This humiliation is also another Christological term, and it basically means the voluntary condensation of Jesus himself down to the under, being under the rule of God. Did I say condensation? Yeah, I thought I did, and that's why I could not get past it. It's not condensation. It's condescension, all right? Let's get that straight right here. Thank you. Y'all, y'all sitting there like, an, was it doing on his head or something? Yeah. I was being so profound, too, and I just lost it right there. It's his condescension to submit himself under the rule of God and to actually suffer for our salvation. That's his humiliation. Dr. Tony Evans, I think, says it the best when he says Jesus didn't empty out God and then pour in man. He emptied all of God into man. He became God poured into man, the God-man. And Dr. Evans goes on to say, when Jesus did something about your sin and mine, he didn't give us the leftovers. He poured all that made him God into man so that man would have all of God. He emptied himself in every downward step leading to the incarnation. Jesus was emptying himself every step of the way, not grasping for privilege, but taking the form of a servant with everyone that he meets. And maybe the most vivid example of this is the woman with the issue of blood. You remember this story. Three of the gospels talk about her. She's a woman who has had this issue hemorrhaging of blood for 12 years. Imagine how weak and decrepit and how infirmed she must have felt. She spent, the Bible says, all of her resources going to every physician she could find, but none of them could heal her. I love the raspberry sounds. (laughs) Good job, Lucia. I love it. Um, Let's all do it together. (laughs) Okay, okay, just get past that. So, She has gone around trying to get help and she can't get it. And she says to herself, if I could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment. Well, you can't get to Jesus. There's a crowd massed around him. Everybody is pressed in on him. But she finds a way. She crawls on her hands and knees and finally touches the hem of his garment. And immediately she is healed. And Jesus stops. Who touched me? Who touched you? Who hasn't touched you? We're in a sea of people. And he's like, no, 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 no. Someone touched me. And I felt power emptying out of me. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's such a vivid example of what Jesus does with everyone he meets. Mary Magdalene. The woman caught in adultery, Nicodemus, Jairus' daughter, the centurion servant, short Zacchaeus, blind Bartimaeus, the Samaritan woman, 
even though she couldn't find a husband that would stay with her. And all the whole village that she lived with. He emptied himself for the 12. He emptied himself for the 70 that he sent out. He emptied himself for the 500 that saw him after he arose. He even emptied himself for the scribes and the Pharisees, even though they rejected him. Every act of Jesus was not only the will of the Father, it was a self-emptying of himself. While humanity is constantly trying to exalt itself, justify itself, defend itself, Jesus empties himself. All for the sake of you and me, the broken, the sinful, the frail people. And when Jesus goes to the cross to purchase our salvation, he shows just how far he is willing to go to empty himself on our behalf. And that's what Paul is talking about, that he would humble himself, taking the form of a servant and even die the most horrific death you can imagine, the most shameful death possible, death on a cross. Listen, it's vitally important that you and I get this emptying himself right in the way we think. He didn't, he didn't empty himself of divinity. He allowed his divinity to be poured into humanity. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And the reason it's so critical that you and I get this right is because Paul says we're supposed to do it also. It's not just what he did, but it is also the example for what we ourselves are to do. And this is why when we consider the week of his passion, we should look at it with more than sad eyes. We should look at it as a challenge to say, we're coming right behind you, Lord, following you in your footsteps with our own cross, daily denying ourselves, emptying ourselves so as to follow you and glorify the Father. That's the life of the Christ follower, the disciple. Maybe not the Christian name only, but certainly the ones that Jesus called his disciples must deny themselves and pick up their cross daily and follow him. When we consider how his disciples continued on after he went to be with the Father, and they did. Think how they were changed They were all selfish with personal agendas, not sure that he was doing the right thing. Peter rebuking him on one account for saying the wrong thing. Them denying him, running from the city, never never to be found. And when they see him, things change. And now they too become self-emptiers. Disciples. Willing to lay down their own life. To follow the one that laid down his life. When you consider these guys and girls, how they carried on in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, how all but one of those original 12, other than the one who betrayed him, how all of them were martyred for their faith 
And John, they tried to kill him. He just wouldn't die. And so he lives to be his old age and he's on an isle in exile in Patmos and he receives this vision from God. They all emptied themselves of everything they had. Why do we think we can live in luxury and not empty ourselves as he did and as they did? James, John, Peter, Andrew, all the apostles, even Paul, every true disciple is known as a self-emptier. Paul even said a few verses later in Philippians 2, even I, or even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, I'm glad And I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What might it look like if instead of preserving ourselves with self-protection and self-care and self, 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 what might it look like if we could devote our energy to actively, consciously, emptying ourselves for others. I'm not saying do things outside of the will and purpose and spirit of God. I know people trying to earn salvation by what they do and that's sin. But when you are committed to him and living life in the spirit, the only option is to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and follow him. What if we could empty ourselves, allowing ourselves to be considered as drink offerings, trusting that the one who is faithful will give us what we need, where we can be fully consumed for the glory of God, trusting him with the results and hoping to benefit others. Is it a waste? Is it a waste to pour your life out for the kingdom? Is it a waste to give, your, give yourself and empty yourself for another? I guess we could ask Jesus. I guess we could ask Paul. We could ask Peter. They lived with the hope and expectation that it was worth it. And so should we. Should we hold back some for ourselves? Should we keep enough in the tank just in case we need to get by ourselves without him? I hope not. Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But if he loses his life for my sake, he will find it. This happens to us in the moments of every day. It's where someone inconveniences you and you're thinking, I don't want that. I don't want that inconvenience. It's where someone asks something of you and you're like, but I don't have enough for me. The emptying is a choice that we make every day, every week, every day of our life. When we stand before the Lord in that day of his return, will he find our efforts having been more aligned with Adam who, as you remember, grasped to be like God? Or will he find us to be more like Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. May the Lord help us as Jesus followers in this day, especially, to pour ourselves out, empty ourselves for his glory, not reserve or protect ourselves, but empty ourselves as he did, trusting him to supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory. Donna's gonna come and share just for a few moments. I listened to some of the thoughts she had about this message yesterday and I almost just let her preach it. But she wouldn't let me, so it's the best we get. And aren't you glad? It was good. Is it on? I think so. This concept of being poured out um, can sound really amazing and very vague. <laughs> and so I was thinking as Chris was preaching, what would that really look like? And interestingly enough, in Philippians, at the end of these verses that he has focused us on today, are some very good examples. He says, you have been living in responsive obedience. That's what Priscilla was talking about this morning, that she wanted to say yes to the Lord before she even knew what it was he was asking of her. But she wanted to be ready to say yes. That's responsive obedience. And he says, but now redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive to the Lord. That's what living poured out means. It's not what we actually end up doing. It's that we're living ready to do it. <laughs> that we are living a responsive obedience full of energy and sensitive to God's voice in our lives because his energy is at work in us, himself willing and working what will give him pleasure. I don't have to know what it is. I don't have to know what he requires for tomorrow or even this afternoon. In this moment, I have to be ready to say yes. And to me, that's what living a life poured out starts with. And I want to pray for us for that. Yes, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us to this moment of awareness, for giving us examples not only in your son and in other Bible figures, but in our everyday lives. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is in us to will and to do what pleases you. And our job is very simple. We present ourselves and you pour us out. Mm. All we have to do is agree with you about it, whatever it is. So, Father, as each of us are hearing your voice today, help us not be quick to tune out, to go to lunch, to start the day, to move forward. Help us be sensitive, responding in obedience by saying yes to whatever it is you're pricking in our hearts right now. May we learn to live a poured out life as an example of what you poured out for us, receiving from you so that we can respond. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. 
the life that you've purchased for us. Freely we've received and we want to be freely giving the life that we've been given. I pray that you will help us in this day because this world is a self-oriented world and unfortunately many of your people have become self-oriented themselves. I ask, Lord, that you will restore us to an understanding of what it means to follow you. That we will walk in obedience to your word, but be empowered by your spirit to do so. And that as we walk and commit our ways to you, you will give us opportunities to break off pieces of our lives and share them with others. To pour refreshment for others, to give them the life that we've been receiving. And God, in our giving, we'll always have enough because you always provide and provide for us according to your riches and glory. Help us as a church community, be it small. It was just 120 that changed the world in the upper room. This group could change this city. We could change our neighborhoods and our, our schools and our workplaces. Help us to live lives poured out live lives emptied like you did. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.